This podcast is proudly brought to you by Calafront. Calafront's leading onset dailies and express daily systems deliver integrated production-proven dailies tools with state-of-the-art color and image science, leading camera raw support, and simultaneous faster-than-real-time deliveries in all common file formats. Visit colorfront.com. Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and this week we're covering The Dark Knight Rises. I'm joined by Ty Ribbon. How are you, Ty? I'm doing well, thank you. And uh, Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? Pleasure. The VFX show is our review show. We review the films uh, that we think are important, both current and past. Though this film, The Dark Knight, uh, one that we, Dark Knight Rises, I should say, one that we've been looking forward to immensely, is uh, I'm unfortunately being cast a very dark shadow by the events of what happened the night before this recording is made. In fact, I was talking to a friend who was involved in the production of Dark Knight when the news broke about the uh, massacre uh, in America at a cinema screening The Dark Knight. And unfortunately, uh, and I say this has been recorded the morning after the event, reports are that the, in fact, the, uh, the madman that decided to take guns into a crowded theatre and throw gas and then uh, rain terror on children was in fact deliberately doing this in a Dark Knight uh, film. We don't really want to comment too much on those events because, A, we aren't informed more than you are by... We have only, you know, Twitter feeds and, and news reports. But I do want to say that we're incredibly sympathetic and our hearts go out to the families involved in this. The film industry is designed to bring people entertainment sort of first and foremost. And in many of these films, we talk about them being escapism and... For many families, they were looking forward to this film because uh, it's a great film and it's, a, it's an enjoyable experience to do this and you should feel safe having your family in a public place like a crowded theatre and, and it's just immensely sad that this should happen. We, we did contemplate the impact to recording the VFX show but as much as I am disgusted by the events that happened in the cinema, I also feel that we owe it to the people that worked really hard on the film to not let this guy uh, take away um, their, from their work. So we aren't going to reference the, the massacre again other than to say that uh, the show is kind of dedicated to those people that died and, and the many people that were injured um, in the atrocities and we just hope that, uh, that uh, there can be some healing in that community. Guys, um, it is sad that that has happened but I do want to focus on the film if we can and, uh, and in no way diminish the, uh, the events from overnight. But I'm sure you'd uh, uh, sort of join me in, in uh, passing on our sentiments that we uh, regret the, uh, the incidents that have happened. Absolutely. Uh, you, Absolutely. You've stated it very well. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to the film. I, I saw the film, uh, obviously, a little while ago, and uh, I, I enjoyed it immensely. I, I came out and I was very concerned about spoiling it for anyone, so we should raise a red flag right away that if you haven't seen the film, that this uh, VFX show, being a review show, will basically be full of spoilers so please by all means put it to one side until you've seen the film my only review of the film uh which i thought i could put out without putting out any spoilers on twitter was to say that the dark knight rises was in fact very dark 
And I thought that was seriously ambiguous that no one would know whether I was talking about the light levels, the content, uh, or all the themes. Um, if you had a review of the show, Ty, what would it be? Yeah, I thought it was, um, I, you know, there's a word that gets thrown around, thrown around a great deal, and it's epic. And um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of using that word uh, because it, it oftentimes is, uh, I think, used um, in a kind of cavalier way. But uh, with regards to this picture, I, I had a, a very epic quality, and I think it, um, it was tapping into uh, the human condition in a way that um, was mature. Uh, as much as the material maintained uh, the qualities that we look for with a, a movie of this sort, a, a, a superhero, a comic book character, whatever you want to say, I thought it tapped on the nerves of the human experience uh, in a way that uh, was robust and, um, and, and epic. And it was a serious um, uh, picture in many regards. It it didn't shy away from uh, difficult uh, concepts and images, and it kind of uh, brought the viewers into uh, a meditation on um, the human condition. Uh, and um, I just I think of the three pictures. It, it really surprised me that it it, it would be. I would easily say, um, of course, I've only seen it you know five hours ago, but I, I thought it was the best of the trilogy. I I think that it was. Uh a very skillful piece of filmmaking and it's certainly taken the absolute moral high ground or perhaps the intellectual high ground as far as any kind of superhero genre has gone. The, the Dark Knight's been elevated to a place that I think historically, uh, you know, used to sort of think of Superman as the kind of ultimate sort of superhero slash comic book star. But Dark Knight now owns this kind of role as the serious thinking person superhero. Um, and in fact, I'd actually go so far as to say at one point in the film when more of the comic book elements re-entered the film, I almost felt like I almost didn't need the cape and the, the drama. I could almost sort of see this film without the, the the Batman elements of it, if you were, because the film was so serious and so interesting and so well made that uh, as much as I got involved in Inception, I just got involved in the storytelling. What about you, Jason? Uh, I would agree with... Uh with Ty, I mean, it's it's an epic, and I think that's pretty much since the first Batman movie. I think that's pretty much all Nolan wants to do is these big, giant, sprawling, epic movies, and he can do it. I mean, he's one of the few guys who can really do it. Um, at one point, I, I went to see this with my brother, as I often do, um, and afterwards we were talking about it, and we went to see the like I guess you would call it the mini IMAX digital. Yep. Um, and afterwards, we were talking about it, and, and we both said, you know, we were talking about our, our likes and our dislikes, and we said, you know, regardless of what we thought about it, we both completely forgot we were sitting in a theater, and we thought that we were the only two people in the theater, even, like, discussing points, story points between each other while the movie's going. It wasn't until about three-quarters of the way through that I happened to turn my head and be like, oh, right, there's, like, 400 other people in watching this with me. So that engrossing... Nature, I think, is really his strong point. I would say, I would say, his only negative is is that he's uh, he's a bit of a heavy hand on the exposition, but I'll give it to him. Yeah, I think the the film carries tremendous credibility um, in many respects, though it's obviously dealing with quite odd uh, things from a purely, you know, if you could get above the story for a second, it is, you know, it's a, it's a mythical kind of tale. But yeah, I mean, there's some Joseph Campbell you know, uh, chapters in there for sure. I do think, though, that 
in many respects, the second film had some elements in it that I missed in the third film. And I, Heath Ledger's, now I'm a big sort of influence around Heath Ledger, and I just think that performance was one of the most spectacular. I think if I hadn't had Heath Ledger's performance in the second film, I'd say that Bane's performance in the third film made him one of the greatest villains we've ever seen in comic books. But it's just that anyone would be overshadowed by just how strong I thought Ledger was in the second film and also just how completely derailing he was in his uh, senseless kind of approach to the problems around him. And then also it had that tinge of humour, like when the button didn't go off when he blew up the hospital, that gave you an emotional release that I felt a little missing from this film. I, I really didn't think we had... I mean, I would just would have loved... A, it was just dark, and I understand it was dark, but I just felt, man, couldn't we just have some, not slapstick comedy, but just some moments of reliefs that we, we did see in the second film? Does anyone agree with that? Did you miss any of that kind of release, or do you think it just played better as the this dark? Well, I, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying. I guess it maybe didn't strike me that, um, that way precisely. I, I kind of felt like the, uh, the Catwoman, the Anne Hathaway uh, character provided uh, a form of levity, or at least she was a very um, uh, uplifting kind of presence. Uh, you know, here she is, like a uh, you know, she's a kind of a rule breaker, bad girl, uh, criminal. But uh, on screen, she she really, I felt, um, projected a lot of star power and projected a lot of charisma. And I kind of looked forward to her every time she showed up because because of exactly what you're pointing at it it is it is kind of a long um i don't mean long in a negative way because obviously this film you know uh, times out at just under three hours and i felt like it was um it was never slow but but the film the cadence of the film is such that it does uh, tax tax you and you're right it's it's it kind of dwells in a very dark universe with a lot of um you know uh violent uh negatively driven um maniacal characters so uh that would that was kind of what I felt about it, but I think the material was such that the tone the director struck uh, kind of, um, you know, just to me as a viewer, it added to the gravitas of the film. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays with larger and larger audiences. Let me put this to you, Jason. I'm, I'm sort of used to, if you have a trilogy like this, that the first film is pretty contained, the second one gets really darker, and then the third one kind of is more uplifting. And this one really felt like the first film was normal. The second film had characteristics of what I would have expected in a third film, just in terms of cadence and, and beats and humour and stuff. And then the third film is really dark in a way that I would normally expect a middle trilogy film to be when they're conceived as such. Would you agree with that at all? Yeah, um, I, I would bet that most of that has to do with Heath Ledger not being able to be in the third movie. Because I think that Nolan was pretty set on a pretty long trajectory for the Joker in some sense. So having to completely reimagine the end of his trilogy, um, he might have he taken that opportunity to just go all the way south with it. But the other thing is that there were rumors that this film, I mean, I don't know if you're a comic book guy, but, the, you know, the big, the big comic book, graphic novel was a dark knight returns which was a frank miller graphic novel where mm. where uh, batman is is basically in his late 50s uh or maybe even a little older and he's basically like sort of the way he is in this one like screw gotham i'm done they don't need me anymore until superman comes back 
as a bad guy and only Batman can fight him. It seems like they're setting that up. That was the rumors that they were setting up for that because that's the big one everyone's always wanted to make. And having having this, this, the setup at the beginning with, with Batman not being one to be there and a little decrepit and at the end where he essentially fakes his death, for lack of a better term, um, and with the setup for Robin, I think – I think he just went for it. I think he just him and him and his brother and Goyer just threw everything they had into the mix and figured out how to make it work. Yeah, if that I makes guess, sense. I guess it's funny you should say that. I was reading. I mean, I, I understand the the Robin reference, though. It almost felt like they were going for a Phantom. He's going to replace Batman as Batman because of all these like anyone can wear the suit kind of remarks. Um, Though obviously, you know, ward of the state kind of thing, um, Robin plays. The the thing is, I guess for me personally, I know that um, that Heath Ledger may have been intended for the third film. It's just there wasn't a lot to cheer about. I'm going to just see if we could compare and contrast. Also, in terms of the visual effects, now the opening sequence in both films. Now, in the opening sequence in in the second film has Heath Ledger. I think violently but comically robbing a bank in the sense that he's you know rigged it so everybody double crosses everybody else and and then he sort of breaks out and there's almost a whimsy in which he does that uh in the school bus at the end and it's not a big heavy effects sequence it's shot on 70 millimeter it's really great but it's not a very very effect sequence that whole opening in the second film i think is carried much by ledger's performance as anything now, the third film, I think, is one of the best action sequences we've not ever seen in a James Bond film. I mean, I just think the, the breakout of Bane, or rather Bane's attempt to break out the scientist, but in the plane as a, uh, as a complicated twist by being himself caught, it was just spectacular. I mean, it looked magnificent. It looked real. It had a plausibility about it that was sensational. Just right down to little tiny details, like the guys on the plane would move out of the way so they wouldn't get knocked by the debris that was coming off the plane and as the wings shattered. and There weren't big fireballs that would unexplained things that broke away in a kind of realistic way. It just... But I don't think Bane's performance was charismatic or any way kind of carried that uh, in the third film. The third film was... a. Uh, Physical and and special effects, or sorry, practical and uh, visual effects masterpiece. Uh, Ty, do you want to compare and contrast? Yeah, I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm I'm kind of trying to go along the intellectual map that you're laying out, and I I see what you're saying. I mean, the the Ledger character brought a la- a kind of well, he brought a comic book uh, hero or comic book villain quality to the picture. I mean, he was overstated and and kind of loud and flamboyant and in those ways that made him memorable i mean you know he was um, i would even go so far as to say he was probably the most like the burton kind of approach to the material he had a you know a kind of extremeness to him that uh did play with a certain campy quality or or at least a quality that that was had a different entertainment component, right? That's what you're really pointing out. It's like it, it, it was a pleasure to watch him because he was so flamboyant in his own particular way. And, um, yeah, I think you, you're looking at it from that vantage point, that's missing uh, with the, the Bane character. In fact, uh, I was surprised at how quickly 
that sequence, the opening sequence with the airplane, became not just dark, but it was creepy. Like, there's blood transfusion going on, which is weird. Like, you don't really understand what's happening. Um, You know, it comes in pieces, so by the time the sequence ends, I think it's pretty clear as to what's going on, but you're not really given much startup time uh, when, the, when the movie opens and suddenly you have these kind of violent acts with hooded men and everyone knows a little bit about you know, the, the violence of the third world, as it were, and uh, you know, the CIA kind of component and threatening to throw guys out the plane. And then actually the, the severity of the sequence um, with regards to the physicality of it and the plane being stripped of its wings and the uh, interesting use of the camera and uh, obviously some kind of rig sets was it was it was really a powerful sequence on an emotional level and and I think it it didn't leave any room for uh, that kind of I go I guess joyful appreciation or or levity or something like you're pointing to uh, the question I would raise with regards to that is. Did it affect my viewing experience in totality? Um, you know, was that levity missing? And I guess going back to what I said, I guess the the Catwoman character kind of added a little bit of that for me. So I don't know that I would um, say that I missed it. But your point is well made. It does. It is a clear separation. I think. Okay. I mean, Bane. Bane, Bane lacked finesse, right? But that's his character. He's a steamroller. He just comes in. He's single-minded, and he has the ability and the strength, even from a physical nature, to just get what he wants. And and everyone is, through the League of Shadows or what have you, is behind him 100%, including the guy who's like, oh, sure, I'll stay on the plane and die for the cause. Um, I would say that the opening of this movie is a, is the best opening action sequence and the opening of the second one is the best acting sequence opening well, this sequence. is my point but let me and, and i mean i really do think that and not just because this is the vfx show but i just think the star of that opening sequence the thing that made me go oh god this is going to be so cool wow great you know settle into the chair this is going to be a ride was second unit visual effects or first unit visual effects and uh special effects and in the first film it was heath ledger and i was like oh my god this is going to be amazing they've pulled off this silly joker character with such credibility that it's spooky um but let me let me bend this around to say one other thing would you guys agree and i'll, I'll throw this one at you jason this seemed to be the least gothic gotham uh yeah it was there's not a lot of night it's a lot of daytime which is different and it was a huge mix of la and new york for gotham uh well and pittsburgh <laughs> and pittsburgh yeah even but, I know that that was a Pittsburgh stadium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't watch sports, but my brother turned to me. He's like, oh, that's the Steelers. I was like, I guess so. But, yeah, I mean, the that being a New Yorker, that always, I wouldn't say takes me out of it, but it's fun to try and pick out the neighborhoods. And and uh, it, and I've also shot in a lot of the areas that they did the L.A. stuff. So that was a, maybe a unique situation for me. But yeah, I, I like the I didn't mind the look of New York that they chose. I mean, I think the most iconically gothic shot is Batman standing on top of the or near the fifth, top of the 59th Street Bridge uh, with the big wide helicopter shot with it just the cape flowing in the wind. I mean, that's I would say that's probably the most gothic of the of the look. And I don't think it gets it's, it's pretty subdued from a look perspective, uh, I think. Yeah, I, it, the art direction overall 
didn't uh, even and and I send the art direction to some of the shot design. Like I think in the recent Spider-Man film, we had a more graphic novel framing and composition of uh, posing for Spider-Man than uh, we saw in this. This w- there was a couple of shots of him like standing on top of towers overlooking the city that were very. Uh, it felt to me, you know, comic book esque in a very serious kind of Gotham sense. But most of it wasn't. Most of it was, <clears throat> you know dark realism and of course i probably helped by the fact that bane didn't have a ridiculous outfit he wasn't looking like a penguin or a uh, mr freeze he looked you know kind of like a normal guy with a with a gas mask on maybe of course the big variant on this is uh catwoman but even there like she was most of the time uh when especially when she wasn't uh, riding on the the uh the bike the bat pod she was dressed in sort of normal clothes or variations on the cat theme, especially at the ball. Um, so it just didn't it didn't have that kind of art direction feel of a very sort of gothic Gotham. But I did, I did like the I, I did like the costuming I don't know if it would be costuming or props, but the way that her goggles flipped up yeah. to her head to be ears. Yeah that was nice. Uh, I thought that was a nice subtle subtle touch. Nicely yeah, introduced they, as I thought was, she I'm sorry. They, I, I just, I, I felt like they integrated the costuming uh, all the way around really well. I mean, she, the Catwoman character, has a certain credibility um, because you're introduced to her in kind of steps. Yeah. So she, there's not a moment where she suddenly blossoms into the 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 woman in the in the latex outfit. You know, she doesn't she doesn't just suddenly show up and go ah here now let's reveal uh, Catwoman. It's more of a you see that most of her costuming is is for her craft as a super yeah. criminal or as a super um, you know uh, burglar right cat burglar um, and then by the time you see her in her what I guess would be the full blown costume it, it has a functionality very similar to what Batman does with his uh, you know kind of suit being military you know and I thought they handled that well because so often when you know when you look at the history of these kind of films when the when they start bringing Batgirl to the party it usually kind of gets a little bit goofy and I thought that that was didn't undermine the larger credibility of the film in any other way and and actually with Bane himself with of course there's the iconic mask uh, well that's almost like a dog muzzle or something you know it has a a severe graphic quality but the rest of his the time he has as many costume changes as as anyone in the picture and it's always this kind of unexpected you know fur-lined collar and unexpected like messenger jacket you know it's it was really well done to make it seem as though these were real people that had a wardrobe and that they actually had lives and and again i think that that this movie was very smart in allowing the fantastic to dwell really really well inside of a foundation that would more or less was real i think tom hardy was terrific as bane um I really do. I think he's that, always good. But also, it was interesting that Batman's costume meant that his eyes were really sort of harder to see, and his mouth plays very strongly. And Bane, his mouth's impossible to see, and his eyes play incredibly strongly. Um, they are a yin and yang to each other, almost in a literal sense. And yet, and he also has this this uh, I wouldn't say Shakespearean, but a li- his his delivery is very sort of egalitarian. You know. Like, look, I'm doing this for you. Like, he he only yells really once. Oh uh, yeah, he had a he had an 
almost educated uh, professorial kind of control. But you, you needed something for people to believe that someone would buy into him as a leader, especially after you've set it up in that opening scene. I think you mentioned, Ty, where somebody's happy to die for him. You, you have to have some charisma or something. You would have to be a, a good speaker. Otherwise, you're just not going to get people to follow you. He wasn't, he wasn't like uh, the Joker where it was a reign of terror on his own people kind of thing. You had to believe, League of Shadows-wise, that he was a leader that they would follow into, into hell and back. Well, you yeah, also find was, out by the end that he was the that he's obviously the the lover of Ra's al Ghul's daughter, so that gives him a certain amount of credibility. But you don't find that out till the end. Lover so or protector? To, I saw it as a father. Well, maybe not lo- lover, but they there was definitely a connection there beyond. Oh, yeah. I I felt uh, whatever. But I also I also saw Ty, I don't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say. Um, Nolan's power as a director also comes in casting because I'm not a big Anne Hathaway fan. And when they said she was going to be assumably Catwoman, I was like, oh, great. But the only thing, the only reason I gave it to him is because I said the exact same thing about Heath Ledger because I I was a Heath Ledger fan, but I just didn't see it. And that's that's to my detriment because obviously I saw the movie and I was like, holy shit, this is one of the greatest performances, period, much less in a comedy comic book movie or what have you. And I think I enjoyed her on screen in this movie. He, 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 whatever he did to her acting, he took away what, for what I probably couldn't even articulate exactly what I don't like about her acting, but he took that away and create, allowed her to create a character that came through without seeing her. And it was the the character. And I, I think that's one of his strong points is molding the actors into these really strong uh, uh, pictures of the character. What were we going to say, Ty? Yeah, I mean, I, I well, first of all, I, I agree with the casting completely. In fact, I have this whole theory, you know, that oftentimes the, the, uh, in, the, in the course of an actor's career, there will be these landmark performances that oftentimes come with a specific director because that they somehow have a synergy that transcends you know both both you know the the filmmaking process is affected by the actor so deeply and the actor is affected by that particular director's sensibilities and we could make a long list but i i feel that that was true with the the catwoman because again i was concerned it was going to be oh okay here we go you know that kind of strange um we're running out of ideas let's bring in the girl in the in the latex outfit again but um but i don't just one last point on the bane character and the way that he he was delivering his lines and there was a lot of dialogue um uh, which was that somehow his being articulate and well-spoken and his analogies and his little speech about coming from darkness you know he, he obviously was presented as as a very literate very intelligent very thoughtful individual and then when you saw his behavior that even made him more creepy um because the contrast was so great you know there's nothing you one knows that a, a you know a person that's just brutal is brutal and one knows that a person that's manipulative and maniacal is manipulative and maniacal but when you have them together and it's very unsettling i thought that the scenes um, that he was the center of, I felt that anything could happen, and that's not super easy to do either. Like the violence was very sudden and um, visceral, and um, uh, you know, I wasn't sure when the director was going to just 
tap it for the purposes of keeping me, uh, you know, alert, or whether he was going to suddenly, you know, do something I hadn't even conceived of. So I felt as a as a villain beyond his aesthetic, of course. Um, the he was kind of the whole package. I mean, he carries a lot of the movie, and it's just a well drawn. Um, uh, entity, you know, he's just a, an original that's that just delivers kind of consistently through the course of the whole film. Even to as much as the ending, I actually felt a little sad for the guy. You know, <laughs> I, that seems like the most ridiculous possibility. But I was like, oh, look, he has a little tear even in his eye. Yeah. You know, yeah, he dropped no, he, the Demi, he dropped the Demi Moore tear and just you know, yeah, everybody. And, and it, there was admiration in those eyes. That was a performance that you know, absolutely really hard to deliver. I, I do also think before we just quickly. Leave acting. I I think Michael Caine was acting really well. Oh awesome. Jesus! Yeah, in awesome. any film, I'd see Morgan Freeman and then and then some. Um, people have criticised Matthew Bodine's character, though I feel like he kind of needed to be like that because he was wasn't he wasn't meant to be a standout guy. He was meant to be a guy that had a lot of faults and then came back. But I do think that Gary Oldman. Uh, just nailed it, especially as oh, he yeah. was trying to get that action sequence happening, getting the the disruptor into the signal for the the bomb. He had a frailty and yet a desperation. He wasn't trying to be heroic while being heroic. There's just such that guy can just act. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I can't believe how how weak and frail, and yet uh, I know him not to be thus. Uh, he yeah. was uh, Marion Cotillard, also who's one of my all time favorites. I mean, she. Her turn was great. I mean, I didn't see that at all except for the little scar finger thing over the really unnecessary love connection. Uh, Even there, they didn't – they just skipped having a gratuitous fire sex scene, you know. Yeah, yeah. It would have been so easy for somebody else to do. Yeah, but Um, but, um, I felt – and Joseph Gordon-Levitt as as, um, Blake who turns to Robin – He's always good. I mean, he gave I think he g- gave a nice, strong performance. Um, also, I, I mean, all the acting was good. He he picks he picks really good actors who who can deliver what he knows they need to deliver, which which is what we were just saying. So now let's talk just about visual effects for a second. The the strongest, perhaps, trailer shot, um, and I think really engaging shot was the Pittsburgh Sealer. Uh, football player who runs across the uh, oval that's being destructed as part of the shutting down and, and isolating of the city sequence. Um, can we just talk about that just from a visual effects point of view, that and the surrounding shots of the city bridges going. Um, Ty, do you want to offer your opinion on how you thought that was uh, looked on screen? Well, I thought the work overall was just consistently um, stellar. You know, I mean, the reality again was there was a manipulation of the reality, um, but it served the larger um, foundation of reality. I mean, they they obviously are working in a heightened kind of um, you know stylized universe, but once that's established, it's very consistent, and I think that that just you know reiterates the um, uh, you know the the kind of underpinnings of the story being not not fantastic cartoon, you know, but, but real material that the sequence, not to get off from the visual effects, but I thought that whole sequence was really, really, um, interestingly done because of the kid singing the national anthem and the kind of all the background noise leaves and you get down to just this kid singing and what could be kind of a, a sequence that, 
it's a little bit too clever by half in a way, you know, because it, it there's football players running full tilt while the cement is falling. And, you know, you'd know if you were there, you, the guys would be stopped by the concussion and the, the chaos. But it, so if you put a comedy track on there, you could almost make it seem a little bit ridiculous. But something about the cadence of the sequence, the beginning with this kid singing national anthem, the intercutting of these this dreadful things that are under the surface of the city and the, the way in which that this kind of power, dark power is going to um, reveal itself all culminated in a, in a really compelling sequence that really was a high benchmark, I think um, for an action sequence um, that revolved around that kind of um, super calamity, right? There wasn't a shot that I could point to that I felt um, was false in any way, but I will say that the, the bridges collapsing were so beautifully executed that they sort of, in my mind, transcended the the um, the calamity at the at the football stadium. That had a more closed kind of um, mechanical feel to it, and um, just in a sense that I, I don't mean mechanical in that the visual effects looked mechanical. It just had a a spectacle that that was sort of. Um, based upon this um, like mousetrap kind of effect, whereas the shots from the helicopter of the bridges dropping was just sad. I mean, that was how could you not think of nine eleven? How could you not think of you know real acts of um, uh, of, of you know um, terrorism? And it was sort of done in this kind of silent manner with this strange backdrop. So uh, it's kind of a mixed bag, but that's how it all struck me. Don't you think there was a level of control though? Because in those aerial shots, when you saw what was clearly not only the bridges but the uh, the collapsing of ground to cause the the police force to be trapped underground, there was a real restraint, as there was, I think, when the plane sequence. Not to me, I said before, gratuitous explosions for no apparent reason. Similarly, there weren't massive explosions and huge fireballs going up, and they didn't have shots of. There was almost like a oh, yeah, there are explosions kind of going off all over the place, and I can sort of see them. But their scale was tempered by that fact it was a wide shot, and so they weren't huge, and you got the sense that stuff had been was falling down, but well, not that it was the whole city, you know, shaking. Yeah, and I can say from having been in a helicopter for the FX PhD uh, class and literally probably in that same angle sitting in a helicopter with my legs over the thing looking out at Manhattan from that exact perspective it's it's exactly what it would look like like it, it you wouldn't see minute detail it's it's 2000 feet in the air right so you're not going to see even a giant explosion of a four story building would look small so i think they really respected the physics and the and the geometry of the space and to what you were saying, Ty, about the bridges, I thought the bridges were phenomenal. I, I, I've, they've been in the trail, a couple of the trailers, I think, mm-hmm. and, and they're spectacular, especially because it's, it's rooted in reality, whereas the stadium collapsing is, is a fantastical sequence, right, from, a, from an execution point of view in terms of you probably would never see that. But seeing, seeing a bridge get demolished you've seen that before bridge over the river Kwai or any you know either movie or or in real life when things get demolished and they it was so perfectly done again from an, from the economy of scale like it it seemed like bain and his people planted just enough explosives to knock a section out of the bridge they weren't trying to demolish the bridge like it was it was it had a narrative to it it had a it had a a message like we're just going to make the gap big enough that you can't jump it <laughs> 
almost. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah, similarly, when they blew the bridge at the end, there was right. you know why would you blow up the whole bridge? You'd just disable it. You wouldn't need right. to to ruin everything. Um, and that's the other thing is I like from a from a both from a story perspective and an effects perspective, the events were were not only the they're probably not going to do that and then they do it like like the cop blowing the bridge and being like oh shit i probably shouldn't have done that um all the way through um you know things like trapping all the cops in the city for what seemed like what three to four months five months uh and and executing it so um properly i don't know there's no not it's it, it's it seems pedantic to say that it was done right but you know but it was done exactly the way it should be done for a movie that's trying to ground itself and root itself in reality while obviously having um fantastical things happen like superheroes and whatnot yeah i, I i've i want to be critical just for a second on a couple of things i, I did find it a contrivance to have the siege lasts long enough for him to be seemingly have a broken back and have it recovered and then be fully recovered enough to take on Bane and win. That there was like, well, we need to have him completely destroyed, but then he has to come back. So I need to somehow delay this for months. <clears throat> okay, we'll just have the siege running for this long. Um, and in Algeria or wherever the hell he was. Yeah, you know, like- I, that was <laughs> a bit of a big plot problem that I just didn't feel was super solved. I mean, I, I liked that he was down the hole and I liked that he was damaged, but um, it just sort of felt like, uh-oh, we can't have him down here long enough to recover unless we can somehow just... I mean, you know, who was providing these food and drinks to the cops and, and you know, in what sort of way did you have that organised while you were going the anarchy, literally the anarchy of the people's court stuff going on and would really no one try and, you know, rescue and... I mean, it was just, there was just a, at some point I was like, okay, I'm just going to sort of skip all that and keep moving with the movie. Um, and also one other point, uh, which I think I need to answer for, which is more personal. You guys went on the show last week, but I was going on about, uh, about, uh, Spider-Man swings. I was the, on that. And, I was on that. I'm sorry you were, but, uh, Ty was <laughs> right. And anyway, so I got, um, quite a lot of people commenting on my geek out on, uh, on Spider-Man's trajectory and the maths that I did for that. And, uh, and people said, well, if you're going to do that, you need to, uh, to go into the fact that uh, Batman seems to jump off very high buildings with just a, uh, a cape and, and survive. So I will say this. I'm not going to geek out on it fully, but I will say that better people than I have done the physics on this and actually published it in things like the Journal of Physics. And I did look it all up, uh, the trajectory of Batman. And uh, the general conclusion from the scientific community, especially I'm quoting from the Department of Physics at uh, University of Leicester, which did a particularly good paper on this, um, which I'll try and uh, put a link to in the show notes. Um, the, the feasibility of what happens in this film is pretty accurate up until one point, which is that well, you could jump off a building with a cape and conceivably kind of uh, slow your fall by using it as a effectively some kind of hang glider. You're going to hit the ground too fast. And the general consensus is that the the speed at which Batman would hit the ground, even on the sort of modest jumps, uh, not necessarily the worst ones that he's doing, is it around a definitely knee-destroying, possibly uh, life-destroying sort of 80 kilometres an hour, 50 miles an hour. And you can crash into a car at that. And in some 
I think of the second time he lands on a car and crashes the thing, but you're just really not going to walk away from that with your knees even um, connected to your body, yet alone uh, having cartilage problems as they portrayed in this film. I, I do think that in this film, uh, I had what I wanted from Spider-Man, which is enough editing around these things that I never looked at it and went, this is ridiculous. Um, but somebody actually did do this from a helicopter and they required about... Um, a uh, thousand five hundred square meters of cardboard boxes upon which to fall into in the classic kind of stunt guy way because uh, the speed at which you hit the ground is just horrendous though you can move quite away from where you jump so there you go for those of you geeked out last week with me um he can do it and he is going to have medical problems and guess what he did in this show <laughs> right well the the thomas lennon doctor scene was akin to the pendulum equation scene in spider-man where they're like all right yeah we he's admit it up his yeah you know. So my problem now is that that two things. Firstly, this mechanical <laughs> device that he straps onto his leg seems to work perfectly well, even yeah. when he's uh, climbing out of a uh, prison in Angolia or wherever he was. Yeah. And my second problem is that that while he looks like he's about to cough up blood and pass out when he's stabbed through the ribs with a knife, that quickly gets yep. healed and no longer an issue as he <clears throat> keeps continuing fighting for the remainder of the film. I think it's a bit of a film law thing that your hero can be stabbed uh, I guess Gladiator was a good example of it, but normally um, in or films, the passion, <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, though, in the in the yeah, in the stabbing in Gladiator, at least he died, right? <laughs> like it's a game to his wounds. And this, it felt like he got stabbed in the kidneys, and then and then miraculously used the uh, the bat spray to uh, medical bat spray to fix. So it. I have a nuclear physics problem with this. Oh yeah, uh, show the, with this the, movie, which the fact is that they sold fusion. <laughs> Would you say? fact that they solved fusion well regardless we'll 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 give that to them no it's the it's the why didn't they show the massive tidal wave that would have come over uh gotham after a four megaton explosion six miles out from shore yes well i think there's quite a lot of problems really like uh, <laughs> you know chernobyl showed uh it just to the swedes and the rise in uh radiation in the moose population that uh, there yeah. are long-term medical consequences of firing any nuclear weapon or any nuclear accident anywhere within a yes. long distance of a populated uh, region. I really feel sorry for these people of Gotham. They seem to have like, a really hard time. But, <laughs> but I think we can safely say that uh, you're either going to buy that in a comic book film or you're not. Um, no, of course. It didn't and the reason I brought it up last time was not to be a smart-ass, uh, maybe it was a little bit, but not to be a smart-ass over, over them getting it wrong, but it was whether or not it was credible in terms of watching the film. So I'll, I'll try and bring it back to that and ask you, Ty. I don't think when they break the sort of various laws of physics that they do in this film that it looked what I call toony or super fake as a consequence. Did you feel that? No, I mean, again, I think that there's a consistency. Uh, the director has the cadence of of, of um, how things are unfolding that allows you to take a step at a time and sort of invest in the story and the characters to the degree that um, is required for you to then accept the challenges that go along with this kind of a genre. Um, it's interesting because um, uh, you could point early on to, uh, you know, like they basically make a whole scene out of the, the point that he's so decrepit. Um, but it's sort of saying to the audience, like, we know he's really, you know, couldn't 
be walking away from this stuff with no effect. But in this movie, we're going to say that the effect is minimized by his mission and his um, his conceptual concerns and his his tenacity and all the things that make him heroic. So you know, they play pretty loose with it. But but I, I think that's could make it. You, know, you can make an argument about that with even really well done, uh, you know, war films where there's lots of gunfire and you know people get shot and they don't go into shock and they don't lose too much blood and they don't you know. Or the, my favorite of all is when people get clunked in the head with a gun and just go out and then wake up a couple of minutes later like nothing happened. You know, there are tropes that just get um, you know used over and over. So I, I guess I came with the territory. I was actually kind of uh, interested in and felt. That that even though the, there was a sort of super you know kind of super um, uh, superhero aesthetic at, at work, I oftentimes felt cringing you know feelings about some of the some of the graphic moments, which you know is is pretty good filmmaking. That you know it's phony in, in a sense because it's uh, you know it's a, 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 a fictitious universe, but you still are invested in the characters enough to go ouch you know don't don't you know, don't do that or don't fall that way or, you know, you still get a jolt uh, in your mirror neurons, right, of uh, something bad happening to the character that you, you're invested in. So, so I, I felt it was pretty even. So let me talk the to you, thing. therefore, about one specific one which breaks sort of laws of physics and certainly uh, physical laws of mechanics, which is the bat bike or the, the uh, bat pod and its ability to do sort of 90-degree turns on the basis of the wheel spinning, which had been introduced in the second film. Um, it's a hard sell because we almost all know that that's not going to happen. And and yet uh, you want it to be that he has some gadgets. You want him to have some kind of cool, funky stuff that he does. Um, he uses it in his escape in the first part of the film. Obviously, he then uh, has Catwoman on the uh, bike in the later part of the film doing the same thing. What, how do you think that read as a visual effect? Like, did they sell that? I loved it. Personally, I know it's completely retarded, but when he did, when, when both of them do it, it just looks so cool. And you just like, well, of course, Batman would have something that would do that, even though it's physically, you know, from a from a directional and like uh, inertia perspective wrong. It just I just like the way it looked. So I completely glossed over any problems. And I was just like, that's awesome. I love that bike. I just think that bike is like those big, round, weird tires. And it just. It's a cool bike. It's a total comic book bike. So I'm in. I don't care if they, what they do with it, personally. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Uh, it, what's funny is I saw the, um, having done a lot of flying vehicles in my career and worked on vehicles that fly and stuff, um, I thought that the my first glimpses of the, the, the bat flying vehicle was, was I was like, eh, I don't know, man. The physics of that are going to be pretty hard to imagine. And guess what? They were. I didn't get any sense of any real aviation capacity from from that design. Uh, it had a lot of strange qualities that I couldn't imagine would translate into some kind of um, VTOL kind of vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. But I didn't care for the same reason. I, I It was stealthy enough and it had enough 
chunky, wedgy, cool pieces, and and you got a sense there were big fans inside. That yeah, I went with it. It kind of reminded me of uh, you know, it was cool enough visually that I invested again into it. So I enjoyed it on screen, and the sound was great, and it had cool guns. And actually, yeah. the thing the thing about the thing that was funny that struck me, and it was just one shot. And now we're going to get into that area that I don't really like to talk about because it sort of becomes so geeky but you know there was one of the um batmobiles that that was captured and used by the the bad guys and it had this strange cannon on the back and they at one point used this cannon to shoot the shoot the bat flying vehicle and it it just felt so feeble and and kind of phony it didn't didn't even look like a, a weapon it just kind of looked like a spoon or something so came about it. the so your problem was on the uh, actual tumbler itself, not the sequence that followed where those rockets are chasing the the bat or no no, this was much I, I, this is why i don 't want to start looking at very specific shots. It was just one shot towards the end of the film when they 're using the yep. tumbler duplicates the the yep. ones that are um, you know camouflaged to protect the the device in a truck and, and and then the bat flying vehicle comes and I think that's the sequence and there's this kind of cannon that, that kind of rises up and, and turns on the top of the tumbler and it has two barrels and it it's kind of designed to look like it's from that universe but it really is much more kind of uh, curved surfaces as opposed to flat surfaces and then right. it fires a few times and it just it just seemed like it was unnecessary for one thing and it didn't seem like it was from that same technological universe it seemed like uh, design inconsistencies in terms design of design inconsistency yeah. yeah and and jason how did you find the bat out flying the heat seeking missiles uh it it's i mean again uh ty probably has a lot more expertise in understanding aeronautical physics but it seemed like it was doing the right thing it was banking low and trying to at the last minute get out of the way and put a obstacle in between it and the and the the missiles. So to me, it worked. I mean, the the blades underneath to keep the rotor secured and and out of the way of like they said, so it can uh, move between buildings. I don't know if that's feasible, but the sort of Apache helicopter meets Everglades fan boat, you know, approach. It, it worked for me because it, again, it looks to me, it looks like. The sort of the the 80s ish modern Batman vehicle designs that I love, so I'm in from a from a comic book perspective. I I, I get off the physics on those things. Uh, can I just point out when it to just there's actually wasn't any visual effects shots that jumped out at me except for one that looked like a visual effects shot. Um, I, I, I'll stay away from the stadium collapsing because it's such a, a grand scale effect that there's no way that it's going to be invisible as an effect. But when, when he finally secures the latch from the bat uh, copter to the, the fission ball and he's dragging it through the streets and he lifts up and it hits the lamppost yep. and bends it, the lamppost looks completely fake. <laughs> okay. And for, for some reason, that jumped out at me. I wasn't looking. I honestly, like... There's some poor guy in there going, damn, I, know, I knew I should have worked I, harder on that post. I, it's not a, it's not a knock on post. whoever did it, but, you know, uh, it just, that was the only thing that I was like, You're kidding oh, that yourself was weird. if you think the one guy that did that post in London isn't feeling bad I know, right I know. I, um, I apologize. I, it but. is actually, though, interesting that most of our discussion has centered around the feasibility uh, or design inconsistencies. 
which I think is testament to just how well the stuff was rendered and composited. Um, the guys on uh, Dark Knight, uh, the previous, the second film, were working on a 64-bit implementation of Shake because, uh, as we knew from publicity back then, um, they actually had a source code to Shake and they're now on Nuke. But um, notwithstanding that, uh, I understand that, uh, you know, the DNEG pipeline is uh, got a lump, number of proprietary pieces of uh, stuff in it. They've always had really good, uh, very, very good digital cities uh, from the first uh, Batman film right through and they did some terrific destruction sequences in the uh, inception lowest level building collapsing oh, yeah. into the ocean kind of stuff. Beautiful. So the Dean Egg skill in cities, also their skills in destruction, but I want to just say that I think their ability to get the lighting and the rendering right, I mean we are really not been discussing anything close to um, did that look like it was meant to be there, was the lighting incorrect, was the black levels wrong? Um, I mean, Ty, uh, unless I'm misreading you, you, you would be in sympathy with this, right? That this really was technically executed incredibly well. If we leave aside design for a second. Absolutely. In fact, uh, what uh, it's so high, quite honestly, that you don't think about it. I mean, you know, everyone wants their the, – the, the whole thing about visual effects, of course, is you don't want it to, to alert the audience on any level. And, and I would say that sequences that I knew – you know, for sure, were uh, effects driven. We're not even getting a, 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 you know, they weren't even sending off any neurological warnings. You know, there was, it was a very consistent film from from beginning to end. And even when I point to some of the things that uh, you know I might have quarreled with design wise, I ended up buying into it because it was so seamlessly um, uh, executed. And you're right about this. The photography style was matched very, just incredibly st- seamlessly with, with the VFX and the, and the dark levels and, and the, the amount of, um, you know, there, there, was no, there was nothing to telltale much of anything that I got any sense of. Even, and it was very naturalistic. Uh, so I, you know, it, it could almost have been a lot of the shots that were, I suspect, with the vehicles, for example, that were actually completely synthetic, they almost looked like they could have been wire removal shots or something. You know, it was it was really well integrated, and I think it was just a an a an a outing. You know, that, well, I think it was a mixture of both, right? Because like the bat copter sequence, I remember seeing that they actually had a physical bat copter hanging from a crane in the street. Yeah, I know they I know they had for, a full size some top. of those. Yeah, so it's like hard to tell. I would say. I would say there was one shot in a, in the night. What, right, it's it's the shot right before the bat copter comes in and lands at night on the roof. There's this wide shot. It's almost like a Blade Runner shot. Like the thing comes past and and goes off to the left, and you're sort of mm-hmm. looking down. And I remember, like as soon as we do, it looked it looked down, and the darkness of the, the there's no lights in the street. It's just sort of dark. And I said, I immediately said, oh, I think those blacks are a little lifted. And then they cut to the more um, profiley landing shot, and it's foggy. And I was like, "Oh, then it's just foggy." You know what I mean? Like it's—it's like I don't know. I wasn't, and again, I wasn't looking for shots. I was looking for the most egregious things that were just that would pop out without looking. Of course, there are none except for that one, which, as far as I can tell, wasn't even that because because of the the fog level that they were using for. for the blacks anyway. I mean, it's, it's, I was hard pressed 
especially knowing New York and knowing how they modified the island from certain angles. I mean, I think they added bridges on the west side in that in that wide. I'm going to have to say, when it comes to these uh, normally rigid body stuff, but even um, soft body sims and stuff, if you were to take a trajectory of these superhero films and let's put in that uh, Pantheon Iron Man avengers uh spider-man and the work that weta did in uh avengers with um uh with the stuff that though they also because they also worked on iron man the, the fact is that now that you've gone to very heavy ray tracing solutions with uh physically plausible shaders and physically plausible lighting and you've got really good hdrs on set and you are producing photorealistic stuff that is what I think makes these films possible, because they are fantastic, because they are just extraordinary, they look so real that you just buy into them. I mean, Avengers is a much better example than, than this film because I think Avengers is obviously stretching the level of credibility way further. But it just technically looked real. And, uh, and I think you don't have films as successful as this if stuff looks really fake. Like my kids... Don't go, oh, my God, they look so fake. Like we used to do when we used to see stuff, and it was clear that, you know, not so much in Star Wars, but certainly in, in, a, in a bunch of other films, uh, maybe early Superman films or whatever, where you just could tell it was a miniature. You could just tell it was a model. You could just tell it was a locked-off camera. And these films are producing these fantastic stories with these quite absurd plot lines, and yet they look so authentic and so real and then you take it to the next level with a film like this where the plot isn't so maybe ridiculous. It isn't quite so fantastical. They're, no one is actually superhuman. They are all of, you know, our DNA. And, man, they just resonate with authenticity for me. I just think this looks spectacular. I think that's well said. Um, yeah. there's, there are a number of companies that are pulling this stuff off, um, and I've mentioned a few of them today. So those would be Sony and ILM and Weta and... And Dean Egan. Of course, we've seen some great work out of um, companies like Framestore and, and some of the other UK companies. But, but these big companies with their big pipelines are doing spectacular work. What's worth noting, though, is that unlike some of the other films we mentioned, maybe less so with uh, Spider-Man, but certainly with Avengers, Avengers was a, a group of companies contributing to what must have been a couple of thousand uh, visual effects shots. I want to just single out the fact that this was really uh, one visual effects company, one practical effects company, and the visual effects supervisor uh, was uh, Paul Franklin, who is of DNEG, but was the visual effects supervisor for the whole film. So you had a situation of a director working with the same supervisor for many films, including Inception and the other uh, uh, Batman films. He He's obviously got a huge level of trust, and then, I guess there's you know, sort of checks and balances, but basically it's one contained unit. Like, it's it's his team at DNEG. They're the only team. They have uh, the guys at uh, New Deal Studios, because I'm talking about the end credits now, like, there's the only two companies listed at all. Um, New Deal's doing practicals, and they did practicals for both Inception and uh, earlier Batman films. So this is a team, everybody knows everybody, um, and there's a lot of trust, and they're just knocking it out of the park. And it's interesting, obviously the shot count's got to be lower on this film than it is on a um, on a, uh, Avengers, but there was this massive trend to having your film you know, done by 10 different facilities and supervisors running all over the world, and that supervisor not being of one of the companies, but being a studio guy. And this isn't how this film is. This is really old school. You've got a really good visual effects supervisor, Academy Award winner, supervising a team that's really experienced, that knows 
what this director likes, and they're producing very photorealistic stuff, film after film. It's a it's a dream team. I got to say, that's probably the worst thing about this film is that that dream team. Uh, you know, that we don't expect a fourth film in this franchise. Uh, Ty, would you? I mean, they, you know, there just isn't. It has been a lot more the case that we've just had these films farmed out uh, around the world. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, um, you know, when I got my start in, at Industrial Light and Magic, that was the model was you had one effect supervisor and that was it. And they kind of called the shots um, and they had a deep knowledge of, of you know, the full pipeline. And so they could, I think, manage individuals and individual departments in a very um, succinct way. Um, and and I think it was inevitable that um, you know working with multiple shops was was going to be um, well financially uh, very viable and very effective and also new technologies are spread out but I have to believe that um, that the value of um, having that long standing aesthetic relationship where you speak the same language you can use the exact same reference points from previous work experiences without having to make it a story. You know, because you have that common history, that common language, and then having uh, the consistency of talent that that you know is there, where it's again, you know, the generals and the the trickle down uh, is is already kind of well established with the same vocabulary and the same experience. Again, I can't um, help but believe that that translates into the kind of success that that this film has, where it's just you know, very consistent, very uh, potent, and um, very uh, memorable. Just like, very high-quality work. Let's not, let's not uh, name another film, but imagine there is another film that we're running in parallel to this, that they've got a visual effects supervisor, they bid out work, they get to work with teams they don't know very well on a day-to-day basis that are on the other side of the planet. Most of their discussions are happening over uh, CineSync, the director and the DP and the visual effects supervisor aren't close, so there's a bit of you know trust building to go on, and then there's probably some arguing and some bantering over what should be done in post and what shouldn't. There's no history of solving the vision. You've got somebody who's reporting to the studio, dealing with somebody who's obviously trying to battle that for their own to keep their budgets in line with their own setup, but also cognizant of the fact they're trying to work with other facilities. There's uh, developing pipelines that have to be done. You have to build stuff up from scratch. All of that versus, hey, guys, this is the next film we're kind of working on. Okay, well, we know how to do this. We have a lot of the materials. We have a lot of the problems solved. We can work out what we want to tackle now. We all know how this is going to run. This is a obviously a big budget film, so it's not saying that money's not an object, but they are doing this for budgetary reasons. They're doing it because they just focus on the filmmaking. They're not, they're not as we expect, I don't know this, but they don't, they don't seem hurried. They don't seem like they were like under the gun. There was no like last minute 3D conversion. Like just, you just can't sort of, I don't think, easily appreciate about 50 million little things like that that would all be slight negatives, like just little pinpricks against focusing on making a good film versus this model, which seems to be, you know, let's collaborate, where everybody that turns up to work is just here to make a good film. Uh, yes, they need to make money. Yes, they need to be commercially successful and nobody wants anyone to go to business. But man, just a thousand little pinpricks of difference between, you know, a, a working environment that's, you know, in a sense, a continuum versus a slightly combative environment. At, I just could imagine that that's the difference that can just translate into something becoming a, a, a film that's revered and studied at film schools and 
praised and whatever, and a film that just kind of didn't quite make it. And well, it's I, also it's also how like say Scorsese uses De Niro for his first eight movies. You know, a because De Niro's good, but because he has a shorthand with him, and they can collaborate and 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 be more efficient together. Yeah, and uh, Scorsese's used the same visual effects supervisor now uh, for multiple films, and um, and Rob Legato, and I, you know, yeah. I, obviously it's one of these great partnerships. We see it with DPs as well. I mean, Spielberg often used the same DP in many films. Well, I think that, I mean, this is an interesting little conversation, but if you want to go kind of look at it even further, I mean, who, what director wouldn't want to have an all-in, you know, uh, facility? I mean, what, why would you want to take your tasks and spread them out as uh, over a, a large number of people that you have to monitor each one? You mean just going in, going to the conference room, getting your coffee and having your meeting, you're going to do that 35 times, you know, versus once. I mean, it's, 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 the, it's sort of a dance that has evolved in this whole amazing digital um, universe of uh, visual effects and filmmaking. I mean, it's, 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 it's been, if you look at it from a distance, it's almost like a whole subculture of, or a little sub um, biosphere almost of the reality of getting these films made at various times. I mean, there were times when there was no house that could do them all. Then there'll be a house that can do them all, but they cost substantially more. Or then there's deficits for this group doing this kind of work and so on and so forth. But knowing that Nolan is the kind of guy that loves cinema, loves you know traditional filmmaking, loves actual film and loves to wear his three-piece suit to the set every day, and he probably really <laughs> Um, appreciates having a, the go-to guy and, and having that um, first-person, one-on-one collaboration that I think we all seek uh, that are in this. We would all seek it out if we could have it to work with colleagues that we know very well and understand and that share enough history with us that we can communicate very effectively and efficiently. Well, no one's, no one's a super... I think he's a super efficient, focused guy on his own, like you were saying about the suits, he also, this is confirmed, he doesn't have a cell phone or use email. Like that, as I said, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not doing it because I'm afraid of it or don't understand it. I just don't need it in his world. And, I mean, that's that's a bold move for a, for a blockbuster director in 2012. But how much do you love him that he wears a suit to set? I mean, really, seriously. Like, could you just... It's so Hitchcock. It's so marvellous. It's so respectful. I mean, I just can't think of a director that I see as being more respectful of filmmaking than Nolan. He's just... You know, there's no point... Maybe it's just a public persona, and I don't know him personally, but, man, the guy just seems like he loves filmmaking and respects it. This is not a guy that's out to exploit. But I will say this, just if I can go back to... I don't think this is a purely visual effects phenomenon in the modern digital sense, because I'm going to go to the Bond films and say the Bond films got to a point where you had a director that was directing most of the film, but there were these second unit directors that were doing the action sequences. And there was, you know, time and time again, like the, the, the guy that would go do the car sequence and this would be the guy that go does the, the whatever sequence and they would not be using principal cast because they were using stunt guys and they would just go off and do their things and it was like separated out almost at a directorial level, certainly at a unit level. Um, and that would be the remote unit that would go off and, and pick up stuff and it just became a way of making those sorts of films. And mm-hmm. I... I think that I've heard people say, and I've actually interviewed people that have said, the reason that we went to multiple houses is we want specialists that knew their their trade. So in 
a case of a big franchise, I'm not going to name it, I remember the visual effects supervisor saying, I knew that these guys at this London house could do this particular thing because I used to work with them. <laughs> and these guys over here, they have the best fluid sims. And so I went there. And so it wasn't a finance-driven thing. Their, their point was, I am going to go to the guys, the individuals at those facilities that I know that can deliver, um, and I don't expect all of them to be working at the same place because why would they? Yeah, no, I, I think that I hope I was able to articulate something along that. I was kind of pointing to that as well. It's not always just because of uh, cost benefits. I mean, clearly there has been, um, uh, you know, groups that have exceeded, uh, you know, excelled and, and set the new benchmark in motion capture or in, you know, doing, I mean, even s any piece could be um, uh, one group could become virtuoso at it. But I was just reflecting on the notion which is, like I said, if you have to go, even if they're the 15 or 20 best people for the job, to have to go to 15 or 20 meetings to review 15 or 20 pipelines, as opposed to having the luxury of, of one group that you can then you know, trust. And maybe, in the, of course, that even the company itself is going to be subdivided within. So my point is really more about the logistics, I guess, and having that common experience with a director who doesn't need to start from scratch when he, when he has a meeting. You know, he can really... And you see this even in just normal production, like you're pointing to. I mean, working with the same... I've done five movies with Del Toro, I think. Uh, you know, I don't have to have much information to get going. <laughs> I just need to have a 10-minute meeting, and I'm up and running. So, you know, that common language and common experience is, is a real high value. I'm not... I didn't mean to say, and I'm no. certainly not saying that... Um, that it's always a deficit to have it subdivided or that there shouldn't be cases where um, you don't have uh, boutique groups working on things. I was just reflecting on what, what the larger conversation was with regards to this particular film. So let me ask you about your ILM experience. When it was uh, an ILM film and that really, give or take, it was all ILM, do you think that there's a sense of amongst people that are, you know, obviously senior artists, but just the artists that are working on it, that it's our film that is in any way diminished when it's sort of multiple houses working on it? Do you think that there's a sense that in a team, if it's all your film, there's a different level of ownership, a different level of, or is it just the professionalism of the artists? That's not really, a, it's my scene or my shot and I don't really care. Well, I mean, I was there, I was at an ILM for five years and it just so happened to match the end of, really the photomechanical model and miniature blue screen era and the beginning of the digital. And quite frankly, you know, we were doing so much R&D and we were so much involved with the digital development that there really wasn't other groups of people that could do it. And so, you know, you didn't think uh, a great deal about competition. Um, but that said... Uh, being in the art department as I was, being an art director, um, I wanted to have opportunities to showcase my capacities. I mean, I wanted to do design work. I wanted to get in front of the director and, and if there was something cool uh, you know, to be designed, I certainly wanted to have a shot at that. And I think that did lead towards um, feeling a lot of ownership and wanting to be in the first few meetings so you could establish yourself with the director. And I'm not so sure that those times and those um, 
thoughts, uh, those themes uh, um, really translate to today. I think it was long enough ago that it was a much different kind of universe. But at the end of the day, I think that when you do have one house um, doing the, the, the visual effects work, the, um, the sense of completion, you know, the, to go to the theater and to be, to be given the nod by the director, I, I, it is very unique. You know, it does feel like you're responsible. You know, your integration, you're integrated into the larger success of the film in a way that is not, doesn't have to be shared, quite frankly. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that, um, uh, you know, that's, that's um, something we also crave in this business is to be, you know, part of the few, the, the select group and, uh, and recognized for the contributions. And, and you know, uh, again, I'm not trying to say that it's better. I'm just reflecting on the way, that it, the way that it is, you know, the way that I experienced it and what you're asking. So the period you're talking about is the period of the early 90s, is that right? Just give us a I, bit of I arrived in uh, – I would, arrived at ILM in 1989 – and yep. my first real assignment was was a ride film that was all miniatures and models and all done with the same motion control cameras that had been around from Empire and such. And I left in 95 after I was the visual effects art director on my last show there, which was, I think, Disclosure, maybe, or Casper. And I was the effects art director on uh, Jurassic. So I was within that in that bell curve and Casper the Ghost, which had its own technical problems um, and its own development curve. But of course, um, Jurassic was the was the real moment of change, right? Yeah, I mean, Jurassic is a pivotal moment in in visual effects. Though you you were also there for Flintstones, right? I think. Right? I was, yeah, 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 indeed. And it was funny because it, the 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 only thing I can reflect on in regards to uh, the, how you cannot. I don't think unless you were there on site, the speed of change when the digital tools started to coalesce and and scanning and outputting and and the manipulation um, uh, and the the machines were getting powerful enough, uh, it, it, the rate at which the work was eclipsed from movie to movie, and then as it went out into the larger universe and these DD and these other companies and these other boutique houses started to you know, get into the mix, the, the acceleration. That's how you, when I see a movie like this, to pull it all around, and I see... What I, I have to imagine, I couldn't even have counted the effect shots because half of them I didn't see. They were so seamlessly done. And to just think that we had whole shows. Jurassic Park was 47 digital shots or something. I mean, it was a very limited number of shots. Uh, um, we would be, you talk about a show that had 100 shots was a pretty big deal. Now I know that, you know, you, you could have 100 shots that you wouldn't even see in the movie as being an effect shot. And the, the themes that were difficult, nuts to crack, you know, about just storage devices and, you know, how do you get, um, how, how many processors and, and where do you get processors and how can you get more processors and all these themes that have been running to, to just look at it 15 or 20 years later and think that it started really where when we were out back of the ILM, uh, you know, a building running around like Gallimimus, uh with no real knowledge of how the digital dinosaurs are going to make it onto the screen, it, it's stunning to, to, to think about. Yeah, I got a really good insight into 
ILM just pre your period there because I've been doing this series of interviews with industry legends and uh, I did Dr. Alvy Ray Smith who with Ed Catmull were uh, obviously at ILM then left around 86 to, um, to form Pixar and yeah, hearing the stories from him firsthand about the guys wandering over and saying, well, you guys understand computers, don't you? Because uh, somebody wants to do some computer graphics and we don't really kind of know anything over here. <laughs> and and yet, you know, the same story is that uh, in the same story, sorry, he recounts, you know, the Knoll brothers developing Photoshop and it, 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 ILM at that period is, is, it's hard to imagine an ILM pre-computers, but obviously it was um, very much a rapid change from one school to the other and i think it's in ilm's you know eternal favor that it managed that transition without imploding on itself and without becoming a dinosaur it um it embraced it and that jurassic turning point as an outsider looking in it was breathtaking i i it's fairly rare that in a film you you act the way and in the audience the way an actor on screen is acting but when they, they turned around in the Jeep to see the dinosaurs sort of reaching up to uh, get uh, one of them, get uh, out of the tree, the, the leaves, and then turn the other way to see them going into the water down in the distance shot. And I was had the same look on my face that the actors were acting on the screen. It was just, uh, it was a great moment. Um, it was wild days. It was. So can, can I finish up then by, I'm going to ask you one question and then Jason, you one. And I hope I'm going to play to your specialties. Obviously, Ty, you've got a lot of uh, conceptual uh, art experience as well as uh, art direction and then moving into visual effects stuff. So just from this perspective of uh, design and aesthetic, I started by saying I didn't think it was a very gothic Gotham. Just, do you want to give me your appraisal on the film from an art direction, visual effects point of view? Like, how do you think it sat together? How, how did it mesh that realism with that uh, comic book um, aesthetic, just in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I give it an A. You know, I think that one of the things that I appreciate about this this particular uh well it's in all three films but quite frankly you know i wasn't as big a fan of the first two films as this film this film seems to struck a certain chord with me um the i do like the way that the batman universe of tools and and costumes and vehicles is really outside the norm of the world of gotham city i mean he has a special suite of tools designed by this kind of super corporation that has this cutting edge capacity for paramilitary and military devices and, and technologies. And that just gives a lot of credibility to the character and what he's able to accomplish. I think that the Gotham in today's film is a very real city. Um, it feels like a very real place. And like I mentioned earlier, it's pretty hard not to get a, a sense of, you know, 9-11 or the real, or real terrorism on planet Earth. You know, it just uh, has a certain credibility to it. So I think what Nolan does is he mixes those two themes um, with, with a kind of with a kind of expertise and a kind of flair that makes the experience uh, both exciting and um, and feel uh, at least in the universe of the film uh, reasonable and um, I think it's a great balance that he strikes and so um, I feel like the photography the the styling uh, supports the the action and the design sense and it all comes together in a in a in a very um uh, in a, a, a in a very um seamless enjoyable way well obviously i respect your opinion enormously in this in this area and and let me swing if i can to you jason and, and an area i think that 
I really respect your opinion in. Um, do you think it was valid? Do you think it was worthwhile shooting this so much in IMAX? Do you, you're, you're oh. a, you've shot so much digitally, but I mean, did this, there's a lot of work to shoot this uh, in IMAX and about an hour of it was shot in IMAX. Was it was worth totally it? worth it. I mean, it's a, what is the mixture of anamorphic Super 35, 70, 65 and 70 millimeter mm-hmm. and IMAX? Yeah. I mean, that's, to see, to not even know and notice, and all of a sudden turn to my brother and go, "Oh crap! This is this is IMAX." Like the huge battle scene at the end on the steps of the of the um, city hall uh, or one center street or whatever was all full screen, and to not even know that and just feel it, just like sort of wrap around you like a nice big blanket, was incredible. And I, I think. Again, I think Nolan has an economy to him that he uses really deftly. And I think he really honed it in Inception, even though I had some story um, exposition issues with it. From a look, he's going for this really realistic look, so you just buy it right away. And then, and then he slowly unravels the other, the other fantastical or different... Um, points for you um, in this, especially again from an economy from a shot perspective. When there, there's this, there's the point where Bane and 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 Batman are fighting on the steps, and they're moving from the street up the steps and into the columns where they're fighting. And there's one shot from sort of a low angle up the steps where Bane walks in, and it's snowing, and it's like bat backlit, either it's snow or ash or dirt or whatever it is, and is the most epic shot ever. And there's, it's one shot. Like, other directors would be like, let's live right here. Don't move the camera. This is a, an awesome-looking shot. Let's shoot it, the shit out of it, and we're going to cut our whole sequence right here. Like, and even, even the economy of the editing, you could actually see them fighting, where in the first movie, you couldn't see anything in the fighting. It was so quick cut and inside uh, camera work that you could barely see what was going on. But it worked because you're trying to buy into the story and, 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 and learn the universe. And he sort of lessened it in the second one. But this one, in the scene where, where Bane beats the shit out of Batman in the sewer, there's no music. There's nothing. There's no sound effects. It's just them punching each other because they're regular dudes who are just jacked in their own ways. And, and I found that fascinating. I didn't even realize it. My brother turned to me and he goes, there's no music. And I was like, oh, you're right. And it was just so, you know, and they just cut, they just used Catwoman as the audience. And she was just like, oh, man, what did I do? You know, and, and it's, I think that's where his strength lies. It's that, it's that knowing when to do something and how much to do it. Um, when, when I wouldn't use the word lesser director, but a different director might really love and live in certain moments that you of course naturally would want to because your mind is probably blown on set that that's your shot and that's your scene but he's like nope one cut that's it that's all we're going to use so i i think i think um i i I don't know i i I buy i buy the i buy the universe uh on most of his movies but especially these where he has to tackle you know people in funny costumes and and things that would normally throw you out of it. And I, my one other thing is when Batman first comes back, um, I think it's what, after he puts on the suit for the first time maybe, and he comes back and he's standing on that little raised 
black platform in the Batcave, and he's talking to Alfred, and he's wearing the suit without the cowl, without the headpiece. I think that's the only time in all three movies he's ever done that, and that's quintessential Batman. I mean, he's all the time in in the comics, he's wearing the suit without the hat, without the headpiece, and I, it's just these little minute touches that, like you were saying, Ty humanizes. And makes everything plausible and it makes it real that I think makes you able to connect to it. Yeah, I, I, uh, you've summed that up very, very well. And uh, I certainly, I, I sort of smiled when I saw in the end credits, it said this film is, I think it says that this film was shot on film and finished on film. It's like it's kind of proud <laughs> statement at the end. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a really, really uh, good film. I want to thank you guys uh, so much for being on the show this week. It's been a great uh, discussion, and uh, I've really enjoyed it immensely. Where can people uh, follow you guys? Uh, Ty? Well, um, I can always be reached through my website, which is alieninsect.com, or uh, just search Ty Rubin on Facebook. We like to say what you're working on at the moment. I think it's on your IMDb credits. You know, I I uh, I just did a little work um, for Neil Blumkamp, uh, and at this right moment in time, I'm doing some personal work and looking towards fall. I'm going to try to keep a low profile until we get into October, November, December. <laughs> and Jason, uh, uh, you can go to my website, The Diamond Bros or Brothers, whichever one. Uh, it's my uh, directorial stuff with my brother and uh on the in uh the twitters jason diamond one word and uh you know i don't know if you saw mike but that the cookie monster piece that i shouted out last uh show which was maybe about a little over a week ago uh got like seven million hits on youtube in a week Literally is, at dinner last night, my girls were singing it uh, to themselves across the yeah. table because they were a bit <laughs> bored up one end of the table. Uh, yes, it's a great yes. piece. So I was pretty proud of that. I just wanted to flag one thing on FX Guide. I mentioned uh, the Alvy Ray Smith story. This week we're publishing uh, an interview I did with Jim Blinn, uh, Dr. Jim Blinn, uh, the guy who literally invented bump mapping, envi- co-invented environment mapping, uh, the JPL flybys, uh, just an incredible man. And uh, it was my honor to interview him. And that interview will be going up on FX Guide. If you like some of the historical aspects, and I know many of you listen to the show that do, uh, some of these great figures, uh, it's just extraordinarily uh, lucky that we were able to talk to them and get such in-depth interviews with them and honestly him explaining how he invented bump mapping is a story you have to hear uh, in his own words it uh, it's extraordinary and just uh, i was mesmerized talking to him i hope i don't sound too sycophantic in the interview <clears throat> guys if i could i'm just going to read to you a statement that's just been put out by um, christopher nolan and by way of finishing because often at the end of the show we quote um normally uh, humorously, uh, something from the film. It just seems completely inappropriate. And we obviously started by acknowledging the tragedy at um, Aurora. So I just thought I'd read this uh, statement. Uh, it's not particularly uh, long, but it is a couple of paragraphs. But I think it's um, it actually tells you a lot about the director as well as uh, just uh, bookending this, uh, this aspect of the film that we're so unhappy about uh, today. So uh, if I could, quoting uh, from uh, his published uh, statement, Speaking on behalf of the cast and crew of The Dark Knight Rises, I would like to express our profound sorrow at the senseless tragedy that's befallen the entire Aurora community. I would not presume to know anything about the victims of the shooting, but they were there last night to watch a movie. I believe movies are one of the great American art forms, and the shared experience of watching a story unfold on the screen is an important and joyful pastime. The movie theatre is my home, 
and the idea that someone would violate the innocent and hopeful place in such an unbelievably savage way is devastating to me. Nothing any of us could say would ever adequately express our feelings for the innocent victims of this appalling crime, but our thoughts are with them and their families. Thanks so much for being with us. Goodbye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.